Welcome back to the MicroConf podcast. This is another MicroConf refresh episode where we pulled the audio from one of the best MicroConf talks of the past 11 years. Today, we're going to hear from Pierre DeWolf, the co-founder of Scraping Bee. His talk is about moving from failure to five-figure MRR, the six mistakes they learned from their first failed startup. And Scraping Bee has been very public about their revenue. And in fact, at this point, they're past five-figure MRR, and they're on to six-figure MRR. It's an incredible story. I think you're going to love it. Before we dive into that, I want to let you know that MicroConf Europe is just a few weeks away. MicroConf Europe is a two-day event, November 15th through the 17th in Malta. It's focused on self-funded, bootstrapped, and mostly bootstrapped SaaS companies that have launched and are growing to seven figures in revenue and beyond. At MicroConf Europe, you'll be hearing from me, from the founder and CEO of Lemlist, from the co-founder of Softer, and many others. Malta's a pretty amazing place, I hear. I've never been, but I am looking forward to hanging out for a few days, and I hope you're able to join us. Head to microconf.com slash Europe if you're interested. Ticket prices go up on November 1st, so if you're interested in going, you should buy your ticket today. And with that, let's dive in to Pierre DeWolf talking about failure to five-figure MRR, the six mistakes that he and his co-founder learned from their first failed startup. Competition for great talent is more challenging than ever. Almost every startup I know struggles to hire fast enough to keep up with demand. In order to hire faster, you need a trusted source of pre-vetted candidates. Lemon.io is that source. They have an extensive network of engineers from Europe and Latin America, and every candidate has been tested and interviewed by their team. You're probably wondering, how is this different from hiring on your own? Number one, you can have an engineer who can start working within a week instead of months. Number two, you don't waste your time on unqualified candidates. Number three, you'll have easy access to global talent without going through dozens of job boards. And number four, it's more affordable than hiring local talent. So if you need to expand your engineering team or delegate some of your engineering work, use lemon.io. We have a special discount for fans of MicroConf. Visit lemon.io slash microconf to receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of working with a developer. That's lemon.io slash microconf. I'm really excited to be here today uh, at MicroConf, and I'm going to talk to you a bit about my journey. So, from failure to five-figure MRR, the six mistakes we learned from our first failed startup. So, oh, sorry. Yeah. So my name is Pierre, I'm French, and uh, five years ago, with my lifelong friend Kevin, we've decided to go the whole uh, bootstrapping in the Acre Road. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, we started this whole thing by building a few products, three in the last five years, and two real SaaS. And the first SaaS we've built was a complete failure. So we probably did every mistake we could have made, but we learned a lot from it. And today, what I want to share with you is basically everything I wish I knew uh, before we began. So, yeah, okay. So a bit of context here. So the first product we've ever made was Shop2List. It was a simple Chrome extension, which allows you to add product from uh, lots of e-commerce and get notified as soon as a price drop. So like Pocket, but for e-commerce. 
you know. It didn't work out at all. We got a small traction, but we were not able to make money at all from it. But we noticed one thing interesting. Like, people who use ShopToList were e-commerce owners who were actually adding their competitor's product on the tool to receive price, noti price drop notification email, such as, oh, your competitor's product is now 10% less expensive than it was before. And we thought, okay, there's maybe a product to build here. So we quit our job. At that time, Shop2List was a, a side project. We quit our job and went full-time on PricingBot, which was a price monitoring SaaS. We managed to get a bit of traffic, but we never really managed to get lots of customers, which was the initial goal, you know. And after a year, we were hovering at 450 MRR. So we gave up and decided to work on a scraping me, which is a web scraping API. We got the idea because we did a lot of web scraping while working on pricing bot. And with scraping me, finally, we managed to, to have something working. And we think a lot of the good choice we've made with scraping me came from all the mistakes we've made with pricing bot. So let's begin with a failure that taught us so much. So the first one was to think that a user is the same as a customer. So when you build something, especially for the first time, it's really easy to focus on the wrong metrics and it's really easy to see every kind of growing metrics as some kind of validation. So one good example is like product end. So you launch on product end, and then you get 200 of upvotes, you get some press coverage, you get maybe featured as product of the day, and you're like, oh, maybe I'm onto something. And you're gonna spend a lot of time trying to gather feedback from all those new trials and all. But the thing is, it's not validation at all. And until you can find one, two, or three people who actually use your product and eventually pay for it, you haven't validated anything. And that was a big mistake we've made with pricing bot early on. We were really happy in the early days because we broadcasted, we sent the landing page to many, many groups, users. Uh, we did a nice product and launch. We had lots of signups. We gather lots of feedback and we thought, okay, we're onto something, it's going to work. But we were actually lost inside a lot of noises because we haven't managed to get the first single customer as soon as possible. Like, actually our product was useless. On Scraping B, we tried to do things a bit differently. We tried to narrow our audience a bit in the early days. We didn't care about having 500 trials or 100 productant MVOT or a lot of coverage. Instead, we tried to focus and to show the product on a much more targeted audience. What it meant that we went to small uh, growth hacker forum, for example, or web scraping community or developer community. And of course, we had less and less trials or 
traffic than with pricing bot. But we managed to get the first few customers much more easily and much more earlier, which was something that changed everything for the rest of the journey. The second mistake we've made was that believing knowing your industry is the same as knowing your customer. So we got the idea of building pricing bot when we noticed that people somehow, some e-commerce owners wanted to uh, monitor their competitors' prices, right? So we thought that it was a bulletproof idea that, okay, they want to do it. They will pay to do it. And we were completely wrong. So the way it worked, so with Kevin, we knew nothing about e-commerce at all before working on pricing bot. So we learned a lot, we built this big knowledge map about e-commerce, about Amazon FBA, Shopify, which was raising at the time, dropshipping and all. And we learned a lot, but we ended up knowing a lot about the industry and not its player. And that was a key issue. Because I think nothing replaced talking with a real stakeholder, real actors of the industry, and so we ended up having a lot of assumption about e-commerce that proved to be completely wrong. So basically what I'm trying to say here is that we should have had talked way more to user. And when we built Scraping B, we had this in mind from day one. So one small thing we did with Scraping B to talk to way more user from day one was to actually let them come to us. So when you launch your product, it can be hard to convince people to talk to you. You will reach out to them by email, but most of them won't even read the email. So instead, what we did was, okay, you know what? You subscribe, you created a trail account. So if you agreed to talk 15 minutes with us, we'll give you 10,000 free API credits. To give you an idea, the basic free plan was 1,000 free API credits, so it was kind of a nice incentive while not menacing our company's banking account. And um, it allowed us to have hundreds and hundreds, not hundreds and hundreds, 150 uh, customer conversation very early with people who actually wanted to use our product more. Of course, when you do that, you'll have some kind of abuse. People will be, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, give me the free credits. Yeah, yeah, bye, okay, bye. Those are the game. Feedback is easy to discard when that happens. But then you're on the phone or on Zoom. What do you ask? So basically here is just a very quick recap of the Mon test by Rob Fitzpatrick. But the main idea is don't talk about you when you talk to customers and never ever give them the opportunity to hurt your feelings. Because if you do, they won't and they won't give honest feedback. So instead of asking questions such as, what do you think about this ID? Or do you think I'm onto something? Ask things such as, how do you solve this? Or what do you think about this problem? And actually, the most important question here is, what else have you tried? For pricing bot, I remember when we asked that question to some e-commerce owners, we heard things such as, well, you know, 
I've never really managed to do price monitoring, so I'm really looking forward to use your product. Or things such as, well, it's too complicated. We don't do it. And we thought it was an opportunity here because we thought, well, we have a solution. Actually, we had a solution to a problem they didn't care about. Because, of course, when you start something or build a company, you'll have hundreds of problems. And there will be problems you want to solve and others you want to discard. And PricingBot was probably solving a problem nice to solve, not a really important one. With scraping B, on the other hand, we heard things such as, well, we've built some in-house tools. It's a hell to maintain. Or, well, we're currently spending $5,000 on web scraping, and we could really uh, get some uh, cheaper alternative. And here, we had an opportunity to offer a solution to a problem those people were already solving and were already spending a lot of resources to solve. Next problem was, again, in the early days, you don't have that many feedback, and you try to know what to build next. So what feature, what your user would like to, to get into the product. So there is the easy mode where you talk to people and they precisely, want, precisely know what they want. But Again, because we didn't manage to talk to that many people in the early days, instead with Scraping B, what we decided to do was to let them give us some clue. So what we did, for example, on our documentation page, we installed OJAR. We later switched to Microsoft Clarity. For those who don't know, it's a small SaaS tool who can give you lots of insights on how users precisely interact with your page. We created a clear table of content on our documentation. And for each feature we were considering adding, we added a section on the table of content. If people clicked on a section, they would get redirected to a coming soon paragraph. For example, we were considering uh, adding a screenshot feature to our API. And we wonder, well, do users really need it? It would have been slow and hard to get that answer directly, especially in the early days. So we did just that, added a screenshot section on the table of content. And then we waited a bit, and we just had to see if people were interested in it by working on the red dot. So that's a heat map of the documentation. So each red dot means that people clicked a lot on that button. That's not a bulletproof method, of course, because maybe people clicked on screenshot because they simply didn't know what screenshot were. Or maybe they had, they had something completely different in mind when clicking on this. But we found that it was a good proxy to kind of gauging interest of feature or direction your product can take, especially, again, in the early days. The first failure, the third one, was to think that if you need 30 emails to sell your product, problem is your email. So this one obviously applies mostly to low-touch SaaS, the one where you're trying to get people to organically go on your landing page, create a trial, use a product, and then uh, upgrade to a paid plan. 
But what happened with Pricing Bot was the, we thought, as technical founder, that sales, it had to be tedious and it had to be hard and slow. And so when we did some customer or sales call, we ended up in months-long months -long exchange with people who would just never ever sign up, but they gave us hope every time, telling us things like, yeah, impressive, you know what? I'll talk about it with my co-founder and we'll probably sign up in a few weeks. And then a week later, ah, you know what? It was Thanksgiving, so yeah, let's talk again in a few weeks. And weeks later, actually at that time, it's a very bad time for us to sign up, so maybe we should wait a bit more. And actually here, those people, they simply didn't want to hurt our feelings, telling us, you know what, your product is crap, I'm never going to sign up. They didn't want to tell us that, but we didn't know that. And so we just waited more and more and thought, okay, if we improve our emails, eventually it's going to work out. It never did. And instead, with scraping B, we thought, okay, we can't afford to spend that many time selling our product. So if we really solve a problem that people are having now and want to be solved quickly, they should sign up quickly. And with Scraping B, we noticed that in 10 minutes on the phone or by chat, we were able to sell several hundreds per month subscription. And it showed us that that's really the state of things you, you want to reach, a point where you don't have to fight for every sale you need to make. Fourth failure was to try every single acquisition channel out there. So again, we were a technical co-founder. We didn't know much about marketing. And when you try to search about marketing, you'll quickly find almost an infinite way of doing it. And so it's really easy to get lost amongst all those acquisition channels out there. And what's hard is that at the beginning, when you're in the experimental phase, it's really hard to know if it's working or not. And usually what happens is that at the beginning, the acquisition is not working that well, but you can get small results. And then you start to get good at it after a few months, like you start to master the channel. And then finally, you get this whole compound interest thing and you start to have exponential results. Well, the problem with pricing bot is was that we get stuck in the experimental phase and what we thought was bad results were actually completely natural. And so instead of staying focused on that channel, we just change every time we got bored or every time we thought it didn't work. So we tried SEO, published a few blog posts, and it worked a bit, but we thought, well, it's not working well enough, so let's try affiliation instead. Was not working either, at least not as well as we hoped. So we tried cold outreach and social marketing and uh, Reddit ads and Google ads and basically almost everything. And instead, with Scraping B, we tried to focus day one on SEO, and we only did just that. So same as before, in the early days, 
we got only maybe a few hundred views on our articles, which converted to just a few trails and to eventually one customers. But we thought, okay, let's do it again and again and again. Our luck here was that Kevin had some experience with it because before working on pricing bot, he had a web scraping blog about Java, so that helped a lot. And we thought, okay, we should just play on our strength and focus on SEO only. And even though we won't ever be the best at SEO, at least it will always be better to just keep improving on it and just stop switching around on every possible acquisition strategy out there. The fifth fail was to believe in serial bullet. So what happened with pricing bot was we often, we often thought that for complex solution, there was one simple problem, one simple tool, one simple growth hack that could fix everything. One example of conversation I had with Kevin, it went like this. Okay, Pierre, I think we have an acquisition problem. Yeah, we do. So, you know what? There is lots of bloggers and YouTubers about e-commerce. I think I found it. We just have to do affiliation. It's going to be very easy. We find partner, they sell pricing bot for us, and we're rich. And after a few weeks, we had two acquisition problems. Because first, we had to still find customers. And second, we had to find partner. And still, we didn't even know how to sell pricing bot, and yet we thought we could find people and teach them how to sell pricing bot to others. So the idea behind this is that behind every, if you think there's a silver bullet who can think, fix something complex, it's probably because you're trying to avoid the big important question. At least that's what we did with pricing bot. Those questions for pricing bot, for example, were what we should have asked ourselves was instead, is my product useful? Do we get some usage? And of course the answer was no. Like, we would get some trial, but people wouldn't use it at all. And then do users pay or enough money? Again, they didn't pay at all, so of course not enough money anyway. And can I get more user? Can I find a sustainable and scalable way to increase my user base? And again, here, problem was no. And had we took a step back and asked ourselves those questions, we probably would have wasted way less time trying all those tweaks and hacks and silver bullet things. The sixth one was thinking consistency was enough. So you hear a lot things such as success is just showing up or consistency will make you win no matter what. But the truth was, and I know obviously it's on right now, but at that time for us, at least it was not, that if you're consistent at doing the wrong thing, you're just going to do the wrong thing all your life. And I think what makes it hard to get away from this consistency at all cost thing is that in the early days, it's really hard to make the difference between something that's not working and something that's working just a bit. 
something that's worth fighting for and something you should really just give up and move, move on to something else. And so, of course, if you zoom out and think in months of years, well, results or no results would show. And that happened with pricing bot a lot. So we thought, okay, things are, aren't great, but if we keep doing some manual onboarding, if we keep talking to users, if we keep doing some content and spending some time, we'll reach some success because we're being consistent. What's going on? One example of it was Amit came to us one day. He subscribed to Pricing Bot. Amit was selling adult dolls, lots of them. And if I'm telling you this, it was because he was selling 700 dolls and needed to monitor six competitors. And the way Pricing Bot worked was you had to manually match your product with your competitors to get the kind of notification that said, okay, your competitor's product is not 10% less expensive than yours. And we offered to Amit to do the manual matching ourselves. So for one full week, 10 hours a day with Kevin, we ended up matching adult dolls on our full screen all day long. That was not the best week of my life. And what happened is that he actually paid $600 for one month, but actually he paid out of pity for us because he was like, oh gosh, it should have been a hell to do this, so okay, I'm going to pay. But it stopped right here because two weeks later, he told us, yeah, it's not that useful, sorry guys, and he canceled. And here, where we should have just stopped, take a step back and ask ourselves what was going on, we just continued to do it. So we did it with dog food, mattresses, light bulbs, and all those kind of exciting stuff. And it never worked. Which led me to my last point, which was better quit too soon than too late. So it's actually very personal here, only coming from our Hennequel two or three uh, company. But what we noticed was that with pricing bot, we quit after nine months. But we also saw many people getting stuck at doing the wrong thing for years and years and years. And we think it's easy to get stuck because there is always an infinite quantity of stuff you can try to make things work. There will always be some acquisition channel to try, some feature to develop, or I don't know, some, uh, yeah, some stuff to do. And instead, what we should have done at least was to ask ourselves always those three questions when building pricing bot, which were, do I know what I need to do to make it work? Like, you, do you, like, honestly, do you think you, you know what you need to do? And with pricing bot, we answer from day one, at least day, day five, let's say, was no, we didn't know. Like, we were just constantly flowing in an endless stream of experiment, and we were getting nowhere. Second question was, am I able to do it? So for example, with pricing bot, we didn't know what we needed to do, but we knew 
that some price monitoring tool were actually quite successful. But those tools, they were targeted at very big e-commerce monitoring thousands of SKUs. And we didn't know, we didn't know how to do it because it meant really developing an all different product managing like technically much more complex than what we were doing. And we were not able to do it. But more importantly, we didn't want to do it because it meant building a company around a product we didn't want to build. It probably would have meant uh, raising some money and hiring more engineers. And this is something we didn't want to do. So as we asked ourselves those three questions early on, we probably would have win and uh, save a couple of months. So if I had to, to just keep two lessons from this whole pricing bot mess and then scraping me was to never forget that the only true validation is a paid customer. Everything else is just stuff, product and uh, compliment from external user or it just really doesn't matter. And to never forget to take a step back and ask yourself the right questions when you're building your product. So if you feel something is wrong, there's probably something wrong and dig a little deeper. Do not get distracted by this new shiny acquisition technique out there. So that's it. So thank you everyone for your attention. Thank you Rob Alexander for the opportunity, Braden for setting this whole things up. And yeah, if you have any question, you can reach me Twitter, email, or right here, and it's not working anymore, but yeah, thank you. Hello, thanks for the talk. Um, it was really interesting because you mentioned a couple of times that your customers didn't find the product useful. And I wondered what the, what the leap was between having a product which maybe they didn't find useful and actually being really successful now was. I'm sorry, what was that? Well, it sounds like you're obviously successful now, but when you were giving your talk, you were describing that your customers didn't find the, the product useful. So what, what was the leap between not being useful and being ah. useful now? Yeah, so actually the problem was with the previous company, PricingBot. So here is the thing, user were not finding it useful at all. And we scraping me because we early on really focused on getting that for customer as soon as possible. We didn't care about getting traffic or ready to vote or product to vote. We just monitor usage a lot. Like the first few days after launch, I was just on Datadog reading every single API call trying to understand how people would use the product. And it's the kind of things like, when it happens, you know it. Like, when people sign up and spend one hour trying your product and then send you emails to understand why is it not working, then you're onto something because you've built something people will fight to use to, to get value out of it. Hi, I love your slide of the two graphs of the strategies of working and not working, that in the, yeah. in the early stage it looks the same. Yeah. Uh, it's only until later that it works. This is a problem that I have all the time of like, how, how long do I stick with something to, to see if it's working? Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, I don't, think, I don't think I quite understood how you tell the difference. How long do you stick with something yeah. before you realize it's a good strategy or that you just didn't give it enough time? 
I think it's very personal here. So for example, with Spracing Bot, we know we were at a time with no matter what we did, we never managed to move the needle even a bit. So with Spracing Bot, it was actually a complete flat line. So I think if you at least manage to create a slope, and if you do some math, and if you think you can increase the slope in a few months, then you should probably keep going. And if you like it also, because it's not only about numbers, like if you're doing something you hate, but which is not also very effective, you should probably quit. But we can maybe talk about it later if you want, like because it really depends if it's an acquisition issue or usage issue or onboarding issue. So yeah, happy to, to talk more about it later. You, on your dashboard, you use this promo 10K API keys for a phone call with you. Yeah. Are you still doing that? And it's, is it still worth your time? No, not at all. Because after a few months, you just ended up getting the same feedback and the same feedback, and you hear always the same thing. And because thankfully, we managed to get some traction. Like Kevin was fed up getting maybe something like 30 calls in a week, which would go nowhere. So we stopped doing it, at least. What we do now is like, when people sign up, they get to fill a small form, and we ask them uh, questions such as, how many API calls do you plan to make? And if they want to make a lot of API call, and if their domain name is legit, so not Gmail, not whatever, we give them the opportunity to schedule a call with us. Hey, Pierre. Hi. Hi. Thanks for your talk. Great. Thank you. Um, I was wondering about, uh, for pricing bot, you said, okay, uh, if we would have built a tool which would monitor uh, thousands of SKUs, then it might be useful for those people, uh, but we didn't want to do that. Um, but for scraping B, with these, uh, these amounts of customers and these amounts of pages being scraped, I guess your product is also becoming quite complex, or at least the infrastructure. What was the difference between those two? So, actually, that's interested, interesting, because so with pricing bot, we had to scrape thousands of websites and also for each product page, extract the correct information such as price, name, and it can be easily quite complex. So there is easy use case. So I don't know, some video game on Amazon, but then there's, uh, let's, if you want to buy a mattress and then you go on the page and then you have like 20 different sizes. And for, if you want the price for each sizes, you have to click on the button and all. So actually scraping me is a much easier product to build than pricing bot in that sense because we just, we're a data provider and then our customer extract information from our data. And with pricing bot, we were an information provider. So yeah, that's why. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, you, Thank you. you put a really good slide on about how you sort of gauged feedback from users about what to build next with your hot jar dots yeah. in the early days. In terms of as your sort of success grew and your number of customers grew, did you still keep that tactic going or did it change to something more sophisticated? No, honestly, we keep doing it. So now what we often do, of course, is like we're thinking about building a feature and then we ask people about it because now we have enough user and for every email we send, we manage to get 20, 30 answers. But I'm still doing it because what I like is that I can test all the craziest ID here for zero cost and Usually Kevin don't even see it, so he's not mad about it when I uh, write some 
really rich stuff on the documentation, and sometimes it's a failure, like no one click on it, and sometimes it works. And Adjar and uh, Microsoft Clarity are a really well-made tool which allows you to like discard, for example, on the documentation, you can discard uh, data from people who just spent five seconds on the documentation, for example. So what was useful, for example, was to only grab the information from people who spent two minutes on the documentation, people who really wanted to get in, or people who already had an account. So yeah, we're still doing it. Hi, Pierre. Uh, Hi. Really cool story. Thank you. Um, my question is about the, uh, about the future. So if you look forward a year from now, Will you keep doing the same strategy, uh, product-wise, marketing-wise, sticking with SEO, or you will start adding on top of that something else? So, it has a lot to do with how are we going to grow the team. So, obviously, right now, not obviously, right now, it's only Kevin and I, with Etienne uh, doing some development. And Kevin wouldn't have time to try something else, so either we hire someone to do, for example, cold outreach, or we work with a cold outreach agency. But for now, at least in SEO, there's so many other opportunities out there. I'm just talking in terms of you know, keywords and search traffic that we feel we have at least six months, one year of SEO we can do right now, work on SEO for six months, and still uh, get great results. And uh, yeah, does that answer? Okay, cool. One question, how do you know you have six months to a year left of SEO potential? So basically we have a list of articles we want to write. And um, we know that we can write good articles at a rate of four to six a month. And that's how we did, you know, with a very complex math equation. We managed to get to, to six months. Okay, so you uh, double down on SEO and you're writing a ton of articles. Uh, how do you figure out what's the good thing to write about? Are you uh, basically thinking of what you think will make sense for the customers, what's valuable? Or you go, for example, into Ahrefs and look at the keyword support and what people are searching for and have like more data-driven data, data -driven approach? So in the early days, we didn't even use Ahrefs. Um, in the early days, we just learned about this technique called the skyscraper SEO technique. So basically, the idea is like you write the best possible content, usually educational content about your industry. Not, it doesn't have to be about the problem you're solving. So for example, for us, it was about web scraping. So we wrote very detailed web scraping guide uh, in Python, for example. And then what happened is that if the content is good, you're going to get some uh, a traffic and then backlinks. More backlinks mean higher domain rate and, more, and a higher domain rate mean that then you can write those specific articles and rank on Google uh, quicker and faster. But after a few months, so we did that for three or four languages. And after a few months, what we, actually I forgot to mention it, on the call, but on the talk, but we followed the Ahrefs course blogging for business, which used to be $700, but which is now free since last year, and that helped tremendously. And from that point, we started to to do more uh, serious stuff using Ahrefs, trying to know uh, 
volume and more importantly, um, keywords difficulty. Because then we notice, okay, these articles, we, let's not write about it because like the first one, the, the website ranking first on it is like PyCharm or something like that. So we, can, we can't even fight. So yeah. Great talk. Thank uh, you. Thanks. Um, I have a question about the building public thing, which you were doing. Yeah. Um, how has that helped you, if anything, or is this just for fun and all your customers are coming from SEO, or has Twitter helped at all? In terms of uh, customer, it hasn't helped at all. So we currently have five, four, four hundred, five hundred customers. Maybe one came out of Twitter. But what it did help with was, you know, like talking here, for example. So I know Xander and Rob got the ID from my Twitter thread. And then last time also, I tweet about uh, using Microsoft Clarity. You know, and, uh, and in a week, there is going to be um, a use, not a use case, a case study published on Microsoft.com website with a link to Scraping Me. So, you know, it's a lot of small seed that somehow sometime flourish. But yeah, using this to get customer, I wouldn't advise it. At least if there is not a big match between your audience and your product. So had I built a Twitter tool, for example, it would have meant make much more sense to build in public as an acquisition strategy. So it brings a lot of good. I really like it. It makes me meet lots of very interesting people, but uh, it did not help grow Scraping B business at all. All right, that's our last question. Everyone give Pierre another round of applause. Thank you so much, Pierre. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoy these refresh episodes. As a reminder, MicroConf Remote is happening this week, and you can head to microconfremote.com to grab your ticket. This is Rob Walling signing off for this week. I'll be back in your ears again next week.